Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. Look, as you guys know, I tend to give it to you straight. And while I know a lot of things, I also know there are times when I need to lean on others for help. When it comes to insurance, State Farm is the one I count on. I love that they make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim with our app, which was just awarded Best Insurance Mobile App of 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you will have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that truly meets your needs versus cookie cutter coverage. But what I appreciate most is that they don't mess around. They don't bother with gimmicks or games, just helpful guidance you can rely on. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always, for the intro music. Today's guest is Ben Leventhal, founder and CEO of Resi, the fantastic reservation app. And he has a lot of insight to this business. And I've known him and I've been friends with him for I don't know how many years. Uh, but he was instrumental in supporting Momofuku early on. And he was the co-founder of Eater, the multi-city food blogging site that so many people read in a, with Lockhart Steel. They were co-founders in Eater, and he's done a few other things and uh, been a very successful entrepreneur. And he started Resi a few years ago, and it got purchased by American Express. So I wanted to get his insights because Ben's looked at a lot of data around the country because so many restaurants use Resi as a platform. And he's got one of the sharpest minds out there. And besides him being just a general, smart, interesting guy with great insights to this business, he loves going out to dinner. He loves eating. He loves supporting the hospitality industry. And I thought we had one of our best podcasts in a long time for Too Small to Fail series and just in general. And uh, hopefully we'll have Ben on in, in a variety of ways because he loves sports, he loves culture, he loves all of these things. And I think he was um, a fantastic guest. So excited for you to hear him. But, you know, we, we've had restaurant owners, we've had chefs, we, you know, are going to try to vary our reach in this series of Too Small to Fail. So it was interesting to get someone that's in the business, but not a restaurant owner, but someone that has a lot of information and data about restaurants, about what needs to happen, about how this industry needs to change its ways to stay ahead of the curve. And it's something that I've thought a lot about, something we've talked a lot about. And I think it was sharpened a little bit more in our conversation with Ben that the year 2035 has to happen now. And whatever we think our businesses need to be in 15 years, however we want our employees to be treated, what our revenue sources may be, all of these things have evolved very rapidly in basically two months. And February 2020 is never coming back, everybody. And as depressing as that is, this business, as we all know, both from a diner if you are not working in this business, but as a diner, I'm sure you might've heard things or read about things. And if you work in this business, 
we all need to realize that uh, it was not that great to begin with. There were a lot of inherent flaws. And I think that's the, again, the positive outlook about a post-COVID world is we can use our imagination and ingenuity to do new things, to make sure that all the shittiness, the things that nobody liked dealing with don't have to happen ever again. Anyway, I don't want to speak too much. I want to get right into this conversation with Ben Leventhal, CEO, founder of Resi. Here we go. What's your situation, your quarantine situation, Ben? I am in East Hampton with my family. We have a little cottage here. We've been here since early March, and uh, it could be worse, but um, we're figuring you got a couple, it out. You got a couple young ones too, right? I do. I have My daughter is three and a half. My son just turned two. Nice. How's that? At least they have each other to play with. <laughs> Is that yeah, true? Yeah, and, and 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 attack and and kill each other and and uh, destroy the house together. But it's true they they do have each other, but they go they they're wild swings and moods between you know being inseparable to uh, to to hating each other um, aggressively. Oh, it's like that's like <laughs> me and Dave. Yeah, we should we should we should actually do a, uh, a minor dads uh, episode in here too. Yeah, uh, let's do it. I mean, let the healing begin. <laughs> <laughs> let, I mean, like for instance, let me just ask you this very basic question: How many hours a day were you in the presence of both of your kids before now, or like what? What is the percentage increase in time where you have to be in the same space as your two children? Well, I mean, I, it, you know, in, in normal times, I see them in the morning, and I see them if I'm lucky for an hour before they go to sleep. I mean, this is yeah. like, this is a, a totally different game. Um, <laughs> love, I mean, I want to make sure that I give my wife most of the credit because obviously like she's doing the lion's share of the work, but it's a totally different game. You know, I mean, it, it, I do think it's kind of a wonderful byproduct of all this that we get to spend a little bit more time together. And I think we've gotten closer, but the road has not been without its pain. I mean, it, it's, it's sometimes hard filling all that time, you know? I mean, they, they, it's a lot of magnetiles. <laughs> a lot of magnetiles. And is your three and a half year old in, in preschool usually? Yeah. 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 Are you getting Zoom calls? That are, are those working for, for the three and a half year old at all? She's actually doing okay. I mean, they, they only do a half an hour a day. So, you know, they, they get, <laughs> it takes seven minutes for everybody to, <laughs> to to get the call working and then and then they do a song and then they have an activity and then they read a book and then they do another song and it's over. Yeah. So <laughs> you know. <laughs> then it's back on. And then it's back on you and mom again. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I feel your pain, man. I feel your pain. My daughter will participate in three minutes of a, a preschool Zoom call if I'm lucky, and then she just announces to everybody, "I'm done." Goodbye. <laughs> Hangs up on them. So, well, seriously, what the hell is going to happen <laughs> moving forward? Because kids are going to lose their minds before the parents do. Dave, I mean, this is a this is like to me. In all seriousness, I think this is one of the most important questions that we got to get answered over the next couple of months. Because if it turns out that we are not reopening schools in the fall, and we are like going to count 
the 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 time we're without school in you know years, then we got to rethink this whole thing. <laughs> I mean, and you're, I mean, for for Hugo, I mean, he's got to. I assume you're you want him to be interacting with other kids, right? No question. Which is why we just decided, you know what, we we were like, oh, he's not going to watch any TV for till he's like five years old. Well, that yeah. went out the window because we're like, <laughs> yeah, we right. have to show him videos of interacting with like little kids and and yeah. yeah he's reached a point for me where he's like you again like the face <laughs> he's like you again like uh he only has one uh, face and that's when i try to give him a hug or hang out with them and he just walks away now he's like okay man like i thought we had a good deal <laughs> i see you in the morning i see you at bath time and that's that <laughs> <laughs> All day, every day, this is too much, man. This deal sucks. I am the only downside for him during quarantine. It's too much now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do here because I wonder and I worry because I wanted to be socialized with other kids and to know what that's like. And, you know, talking to Wiley and talking to my other friends and Chris that have kids, like, that's a big concern because what do yeah. you do when they go back to school? And if you do go back to school, it's the same questions that we have as restaurants and, and small businesses. Do they have PPE? Do they, you know, what if someone at home has an underlying health condition and, and the kid's asymptomatic? These are really important pressing questions that we can't just like ignore. You know, we, we've been kind of, we've had kind of a, co-quarantine arrangement with another family that, that we know that that's fairly close to us. And, you know, th there's definitely some trust involved, but, but that family has, has kids, you know, the similar age to ours. And so part of me thinks that there's, there may be a solution if, if forced to it, there may be a solution around, you know, sort of smaller groups of families coming together and at least exposing each other's kids, you know, to some interaction um, as a stopgap, but man, there is a, there are a lot of open questions around this one. I think this is, this is qu quietly one of the most complicated and important things to solve here. Yeah. Yeah. Chang and I were having a, a, a one of our, our weekly late night conversations with Dan Juicy, just trying to unpack all of this stuff. And, and I was saying to him, uh, school teachers are getting, even less guidance than restaurants on, on how to do this, on how to come back. They have no, you know, I was on a call with our school and they did, they just are not getting any help. They don't know how to pull this off. And honestly, I, we, we told Dan, you know, he works in schools in the cafeteria. He has this know-how and expertise. You know, it might come down to, if restaurants have to figure out for themselves, they might be setting the pace for, for other groups, teachers included. So I think restaurants are going to be figuring this out for a lot of us. I mean, that's a, a good example of where there's crossover. I mean, I think there's tons of examples of how restaurants are going to have to solve these things and, and develop the best practice. You, you know, this is, this is a incredibly important topic because uh, we're talking about parental leave policies and benefits for workers and in general in our industry. And, you know, I was talking to Tatiana Levha, the, the great chef in, 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 um, in Paris, and her husband Bertrand, who runs Septime, one of the best chefs in, in Paris, they're both like the super couple of, of being chefs. There's no daycare right now. So, and usually you would have help from your grandparents. 
So if you can't get help there, then one of the couples has to stay home to take care of the kids. And, you know, I, we've been going through scenarios uh, with some of our restaurants, like Major Domo in LA is perfectly situated, not perfect, but of all our restaurants, that's the one that's probably going to get online the quickest. But we have to work out the logistics because a lot of our managers and, and, and the salaried employees have kids. Yep. And you have to have this moral dilemma of a question, who goes to work? Because some of them, the the partners are actually like, you know, work for, you know, big Hollywood companies and they're the ones going to work and they could depend on daycare and or nanny or something like that. That's out of the question. So what do we do here? Because of course everybody wants to go to work, but nobody wants to be the person that potentially puts their family at risk. And these are questions that are very difficult. I've asked a lot of my peers, and no one wants to answer them. They feel that it's pretty low on the totem pole of importance. I disagree. Because if we can't figure out a solution for this, then, then we're sort of fucked. <laughs> yeah, I think, it's, an, I think it's, it's clearly a very important part of this equation. I think with many of these things, it, it, it may come down to a combination of protocol and, and culture, right? Because you're going to have to kind of figure out, you're going to have to figure out if you can operate the business within like reasonable boundaries of what people can, as employees can tolerate, you know? And I, and I think, you know, certainly Resi's business and Amex's business is a little different in terms of what the setting is, but, but it exists for us too, where you have people that are now in a very different situation when it comes to childcare and it, and it comes to their home experience. And you kind of have to take that into account when it comes to thinking about work culture, because if you don't, people are going to break down and your productivity is going to go to zero because you're, you're, you're destroying people, um, you know, inadvertently in a way. Right. But I right. think that, that I've, I'm fascinated by what happens to work-life balance in this, in this, um, new reality. And I actually think, you know, if the last, over the last decade, there's been a real deterioration in the separation between work, work and home, I think we're actually going to be putting some separation back into place. I think there's going to be, we're going to be hardwiring separation because it's going to be a necessity. You can't combine these, Mm. but my office is 10 feet from my bed. If I don't have some hardwired separation, I'm going to go insane. You know, if you can't, now you know what it's you, like running a restaurant. <laughs> well, no, man. I think these are. I think that you guys have to figure this out too, right? I mean, you, you're gonna, you gotta look. You know, Dave. Like, if, if culture, your people are, are the whole game. I know that you've spent like a lot of time talking in the last decade about about how much how important people are and how important mental health is. Like, this is a new playing field for mental health. It's totally new, and there's new. There's new forces at play, and mm-hmm. um, we'll we'll have to see what we'll have to see what what happens. But but that, but it's something we have to focus on as um, as 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 managers as of, of people. I think it's crucial. You know, there's going to be something about what you were talking about earlier, like uh, breaking up your community into sort of smaller groups. There's there's got to be some innovation there because I think effectively. Everyone needs to understand that the way of life of late February 2020 is never coming back. At least, yeah. you know, as long as there's no vaccine, then maybe ever. <laughs> you 
You know what I mean? Like we just have to work with that assumption, hoping that we're wrong, but that's the new reality. And, you know, I woke up this morning or yesterday because every day seems to be the fucking same. And I was like, (laughs) took a shower and I was like, is this a fucking dream? Is this a fucking dream? Because I couldn't get it out of my head. I was like, the fact that I'm talking to you in Zoom like this is so bizarrely weird that it's never going to be normal. We're talking about our kids right now in a way that <laughs> we're spending too much time with our kids. You know how insane this is? <laughs> it's, it's all crazy. It's all crazy. Um, but I feel like part of what we have to do actually is kind of like settle into this as a normal so that we can kind of get better at it. You know, I think like in the phases of this crisis, you know, if, if it starts with, us all just kind of triaging everything all the time, just like trying to get through it, trying to figure it out. I think we naturally, like, to me, the transition is now into this is the normal. Like, mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. figure out, like, someday there will be post crisis normal, but they're, the normal, the, the crisis normal, like, they were in here for a while. Like, <laughs> that's right. This isn't, this isn't about a couple more weeks. This isn't, this is probably not even about a couple more months. Like, this is, this is life right now. And I think that it's like for me, I, I have to accept this as normal and like optimize for this reality and get good at this reality. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to go nuts. <laughs> it's almost easier to imagine that there's bombs being dropped outside. So, you know, I, I was talking to um, Jose Andres earlier this week, and you know the, how much of a hero he is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he that's this was actually his point. He was saying like the one of the things that's so hard about this is that there are no bombs. There's no like you don't look around and see destruction. Like I'm looking out my window, the sun is shining. Like it's all good, right? I mean that and that and the like the disconnect there between what the visual um and and sort of and 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 environmental experiences versus reality is one of the things that does make this crisis unique and very, very hard to wrap your head around. I think, I think that's right. I think it's, it's hard to, to, there's a real cognitive dissonance between it's nice outside and we're in the middle of what is essentially a war. So Ben, I want to back us up a little bit and, and, you know, get your perspective on, on how you're seeing things in the industry as CEO at Resi. Um, you know, I, I realize we haven't really introduced you to our audience here and, and what you do. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how this has, has all played out for, for you and, and the company? Yeah. So I think for us, it's been a process of, of getting behind our restaurants and, and trying to be reactive through the crisis to what their needs are and what their what their reality is. I mean, we are, as you know, a software company and a technology company that, that provides service to restaurants. Um, and we, and, and so, you know, we, without the industry, we don't, what are we, what are we supposed to do? So I think it's been pretty clear for since the beginning that reservations is sort of a silly thing to be thinking about right now. Um, but we have, a lot of expertise in house, and we certainly have um, we we have some things at our disposal, uh, particularly in the Amex universe, and we think we can be helpful um, to get restaurants 
through this crisis, you know, um, as best we can. And so the crisis experience for Resi has been about trying to engage with the industry, um, trying to listen uh, as closely as possible, trying to understand um, the ways that we can help and how people are, are, are thinking about the future. Um, and, you know, I would say in the last couple of weeks, developing some ideas about, about what hospitality technology might look like coming out of this, but um, it's a long haul and um, we want to be set up as much with our relationships with the industry as with, you know, deploying technology, which will not be a particularly relevant activity for a while. So um, dialogue, I would say, has been the thing that's dominated our day in and day out um, and, and, and trying to translate that into, um, into a future. Now to give you sort of the numbers, we, we know them, you know, the industry's down um, close to a hundred percent when it comes to people in restaurants. And that's, you know, a couple weeks ago, that was worldwide. I think we're seeing some industries uh, try to, try to, to, to wake up a little bit. Um, and spend is way down, you know, the, it's not just attendance, right? It's not just, it's not just capacity, it's spend. And, and I think the biggest scary thing, if you're thinking about the restaurant industry and how we come out of this is that, um, T and E spend is, uh, flatline, right? Like business travel, business entertainment, two categories that tri- contribute substantially to the restaurant's top line revenue, they don't exist right now. And I think that that's something that I think obviously the industry understands, but I think, I think consumers who are, who are thinking about returning to restaurants and excited to kind of visit their, their favorite local spots are perhaps not appreciating is in order for this to work for restaurants, that's got to come back, you know, and, um, and we've got to kind of understand what the path there is before we really know how and when we get out of this. And that's why I think it's, 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 it's really not about weeks and months. It's much, much longer because when are you going to travel? When are you going to travel internationally next? Right. Vaccine, post vaccine probably. So, you know, different restaurants are exposed in different ways. Obviously some are much more local than others, but some of the most important best restaurants in the world have a ton of their business coming from travelers and from international travelers. So for those kinds of restaurants to come back, we have, we have a long, long way to go. And so it's a long haul. It's a very, very long haul. But, but, but you get it, Ben, you've, you've always been able to see what's around the corner, particularly in the hospitality industry. Uh, how do you convey this message to so many people in our industry that are stuck in the ways of, let me just get back to February 2020. Let's just open up, you know, and without having any subtleties as to this scenario, like they, it's been frustrating on for me because I understand this is a traumatic thing and people are going to process this at their own speed as they should. But there's this overwhelming sense of we just got to get back to normal. Yeah, you're talking about something that's going to take years. The repercussions that are happening right now are going to take a long time for it to unfold, and then another 
few years for it to be remedied. I just, I don't want to be the doomsayer here, but I, I feel like, okay, guys, we spent two months feeling sorry for ourselves. Let's fucking get to work. And it's hard to do that if we don't have solidarity on this message that you're talking about right now. Well, I think restaurants, restaurateurs are going to have to come to this to some extent, Dave, on their own. I mean, you know, when we were first trying to sell resi, you know, into restaurants, like you, you talk to some restaurants and they were restaurateurs and they would say, yeah, we get it. Let's go. And you talk to others and they'd say, well, my daughter's on open table. So how the, how am I, why, you know, my, so I can't, I can't switch off open table, right? Like restaurateurs, the point is restaurateurs are not a group of people who like to be told what to do. And they think that their ideas are the right ideas. And I think for, and I think in many ways, I mean, they're entrepreneurs, right? Entrepreneurs have a lot of confidence in their own views and they have a lot of conviction in what they're doing. So I think, I do think to some extent, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to let people come to some of these conclusions on their own. I don't think that these, I don't think these answers, I don't think this reality can be force fed, but I think we can do a good job of, of explaining why it's going to take a while. I think that, I think that restaurateurs need the context of understanding how complicated it is and how, and, and why we can't just kind of flip the switch. It's, it's not a, it's not, this is a full reset. This isn't just let's get back to business. This is a full reset. And I think, and look, I think that that's actually great news. If you can get comfortable with the timeline on which it's going to happen. You know, I think there will be amazing, wonderful restaurants again. Like we will be sitting in restaurants loving life again. It will happen for sure, but it's going to be a while. And we're we The best we can do is, in my opinion, the best we can do is provide resources and tools to restaurants so that they can discover things and they can operate on whatever timeline they want. I think it's interesting also, like as you're seeing guys open in regions that are allowed to open, there's a there's an there is very much an an, an adoption curve emerging in terms of how people think about reopening. Like there's there's restaurants that are on the very bleeding edge of the curve here that are you know open now. In guys in 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 Georgia and in Texas and places that are open today, they're open. They're go, they're ready to go. Now it's going to take 12 months, maybe more to 12 months if we're lucky to understand truly what the best practice is in terms of how to operate a restaurant post COVID um, and what the business model is. Some restaurants are starting to bang away at it today. And those guys are way out on the bleeding edge. And there's going to be guys who play it a lot safer, who wait till the to wait to see the coast is clear. But um, that's the key point is that it's not, it's a full reset We're we are under the hood, tuning, tweaking, changing the business model, which is, but, which is but great you, news, can, but can it's going to take, can you elaborate this reset though? Because I, again, like that's a word I don't think people quite comprehend. What do you mean by reset? Well, you had an idea of a restaurant where there was tables and a bar 
and maybe a PDR and you cooked food and you put it on plates and you put it on tables and people ate the food and paid you for paid you for your food and you pay, they paid you for the booze and maybe you ran like 20 or 30% of your revenue was from delivery but that was the business like that's the rest that's a restaurant right like in the revenue mix shifts one way or another you know 10% 20% maybe you do my more private parties or more delivery but that's the business like food comes out on plates and people eat it it's not clear that that model works moving forward and it's not clear frankly as you know as many as many very very smart restaurateurs have been saying it's not really clear that model was working if you go back a decade um and others have said this and I don't want, I won't take I don't want to take credit for the idea but restaurateurs being in the weeds for the last decade have had a lot of ideas that they haven't had an opportunity to test and to try and, and to try to bring to life. So now that we're in the shutdown, there's a bunch of ideas that are going to get an opportunity to breathe a little bit. And there's going to be important things that come out of this that are lasting. And, you know, for example, as restaurants have emerged as premium entertainment brands, when you think about how a premium entertainment brand is monetized, it doesn't look like the way a restaurant brand is monetized today, but it can. Like you can have five revenue streams against the Momofuku brand. A thousand percent you can because people want to pay for access to the brand. They want your salts. They want Momofuku in the dining room, but they also want all the other stuff that makes Momofuku Momofuku. And I actually think it's incredibly exciting that that's coming and a thousand percent is coming. But it's taking this crisis and it's taking this moment where everybody has to stop and say, how am I going to get myself out of this for that innovation to come? But it, it, it's this idea that everybody's going to get a fair wage and be able to pay their rent um, just by a restaurant putting food on plates and putting it on tables is 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 antiquated to the point of it being comical and it's it's not coming back. Well, I think, yeah, Chang has been saying what's happening now was going to happen over 10 or 15 years and how it's been consolidated into a two-month process, a complete sea change in the restaurant industry. And, you know, as we were uh, getting ready to talk to you today, I was thinking about something I think you had written a few years ago already, which was that I think you had said something about, like, in the future, restaurants are going to need at least three revenue streams to survive. And that future came a little faster than we thought it was going to. And I, yep. I think that like that's all of the pivoting and, and every the creative work that's being done in restaurants right now is is basically people realizing you can't just do what you said, put food on the table and expect to be paid. Hey Ben, and, and if people are listening and they don't know who you are, right? You you you've done a lot of different things. Uh most most famously well known starting eater with with Lockhart Steel. But you know, I've always trusted you because you're one of the few people I know when I can talk to be like, he gets it. Ben gets it. Thank you. And and when you're talking about revenue streams, I want people that are potentially restaurateurs or chefs to understand what it is that you're talking about. What are some potential revenue streams that people should be open to uh, looking into if they are restaurant owner? I think you got to take a hard look at your brand and what you've built as a restaurant and figure out where you think there's good product market fit, meaning where you think consumers are going to be interested in in what ways are consumers going to be interested in, in spending money with you right and i think 
Um, the obvious ones are the ones that we're seeing emerging now, which are uh, retail, pantry-style products. Um, I think for certain, you know, people that have developed a lo- a name and, and real credibility as individuals, like I think that there's content opportunities. I think that the idea that, you know, I could I could have um, a meal with one of your chefs and they could I could they could be alongside me in a video talking me through uh, what I'm what I'm preparing in my kitchen is super interesting. Um, I think it's a variety of things, but you have to figure out like people are not just going to pay you to sit in your restaurant. You just have to figure out other ways to get people to pay you. That's the simplest way to think about it is how else am, how else can I get people to pay me? And I do think that there's tons of creative stuff happening right now. And a lot of it I'm thrilled about. Like I, my favorite restaurants are starting to develop pantry boxes and meal kits. Um, that's awesome. Like I want, I want to surround myself with the restaurants that I love. Like I've, it, it's, it's, it's great news. Like I, 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 I'm an optimist on this one because like it's as I've always, all of my success in restaurants has been based on the fact that I love restaurants. Like I lo- I've spent the last 20 years of my life in restaurants and I love restaurants. And the idea that there's going to be new ways to connect with my favorite restaurants is awesome. And I'm excited to see how creative thought, thoughtful, um, smart restaurateurs evolve the model. Like this is what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Like we are, we are going through a period of time now where the very definition, the form factor of the restaurant is going to change. It's going to be different. And I think, and I, and I think that there's every reason to believe it's going to be, it's going to be incredible. Um, but people, we've got to bang, we've got to be prepared to bang away at this for, for a real, a real while here to arrive at the right answers. And I think to your, you know, to the question about how do you get restaurateurs to understand this? Well, I think it's going to be in some ways pretty natural because some folks, like I said, I think some people, folks are going to wait for the model to have, to emerge and other folks are going to be in the, going to be banging away at it literally day in and day out trying to figure out what works, but we'll get there for sure. Can I ask as devil's advocate here, you know, are we, when we're talking about that, that mindset and that, that sort of mentality that allows you to rethink how, like what your consumer wants, whether it's, at home goods or content, you know, are we, is that, is, is that conversation excluding restaurants that aren't necessarily on resi aren't the Momofuku groups? Like what about our neighborhood noodle shop, the, you know, pupusa shop on the corner, um, who there isn't really a demand for them to be, I mean, I don't know, but I, I don't, there's obviously, I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we said there, there aren't more obstacles and hurdles for them to, to reach this, consumer base look the bad news is that 50 percent of restaurants are closing right so is there a future for every restaurant no there's not um you know maybe we get lucky and it's 30 or 40 percent maybe it's way worse than we thought and it's 75 percent. but a ton of restaurants are going to close and for a ton of restaurants there is no solution here and i think that that's that's a fact. Um, uh, and, um, and obviously 
we're seeing it, you know, it's, it's already starting to happen. Um, and nobody's immune. Um, but the good restaurants will come through this, Chris, I really believe that. And, and, and the ones that don't will not, um, um, because they didn't have a strong enough business to begin with. I think that's a big part of it. Like if, if you're a small local restaurant and you had a, and you had a great local following on February 1st, you will come out of this. But if you're, if you're a local restaurant and if you're being honest with yourself about your business and you were struggling on February 1st, you got no shot and you should close now and you should be on and you should turn the page. Yeah. And I don't think you mean that as a judgment on any of those places. No, this business no, no. is so hard. In no way do I mean it as in, in, in any judgmental way of whatsoever. Course. No, it was the most important thing you said on this topic. And I, I think agree. people need to hear this. And, and honestly, it's one of the reasons why we, we decided to close our restaurants for a variety of reasons. But one of which was, you know, I get, I'm getting a lot of inbounds from a lot of chefs because I know that a lot of people look at Momofuku as an industry leader as to sort of a bellwether what to do. And chefs are full of pride. And they don't want to look like they failed. And I was like, this isn't failure. This was a calculated decision. It was our only decision to make sure that we come out of the stronger and better. And could we have sort of done it? Yeah. Like, but we looked at the things, right? Like CCDC, for example, it's a big space. The rent is fucking astronomical. But on a practical level, all our spaces, all our seating are counter at the bar, counter at the kitchen or communal tables. There was just, there was no way. We could have a pretty robust business too, but the kitchen being so big, we would have to hire a lot of people just to get it functioning. We went through so many models and there was no way, even if we were doing bonkers to go numbers, it just didn't work. And we got to look at that and be like, okay, is that the best use of our resources to sort of maybe, maybe, maybe make it work? Like, they were, the numbers just didn't make sense. Yes, if the if the landlords decided to change the rent, one hundred percent. But that wasn't going to happen, you know. So, I, I wanted us to do this. We waited because we wanted to see every possible angle, right? Until we had to make the worst decision possible. But the reality is, is again, last night we we made the announcement. I'm I've gotten a ton of inbounds being like, hey. Like, you know, I'm thinking that I have to do the same thing. I'm like, the longer you wait, and if you're leveraged, right, don't leverage yourself. Don't go out and get a loan. Don't go out and get investment right now to make something that was broken to begin with. Don't be a hero. Don't play fucking Russell Westbrook basketball right now. (laughs) You know? (laughs) You gotta, you gotta, you gotta learn when to, to fold them. And this is not losing if you have a greater plan in place. And as you were alluding to, maybe this business shouldn't have been so hard because it was a flawed model. Maybe take the time to reconfigure and to do something that is a multi-pronged attack to get different gross sale revenue. So I look at this as hard as it is as, as a positive because I want, and I'm not trying to encourage people to close their restaurants, but I'm like, hey, this might be the best solution for you. A thousand percent, Dave. I mean, it's a natural 
it's a process. I mean, this is, this is natural. Like, and I agree. It's not, this, this is not, this is not about like logging wins and losses. Like it's just reality. Like these are unprecedented times. And if you don't have a good business, like you said, don't be a hero. Now here's an interesting thing that I think is a silver lining. We did a survey about a month ago and um, just kind of uh, trying to take a temperature on consumers and, and one of the questions we asked is, when restaurants reopen, how soon will you come back? More than 50% of restaurants said a month or less. Sorry, more than 50% of customers said a month or less. And 80% said very soon thereafter, right? So I think that's really that's really important and exciting news because it says to me that consumers are will come back. Consumers are ready. And so the silver lining here might be that for the restaurants that make it through, they may be getting a, a slightly bigger part portion of the demand that's out there. And so there may be, you know, we'll see if this, we'll see how this plays out, but you may get a little tailwind coming out of this because the consumer enthusiasm is there and will be there. Um, but we'll have to see. I totally agree with that. Can I ask, um, backing up to what we were talking about earlier and your experience building Resi and sort of convincing owners of a, a new model? Um, because I think, it'll, I think it'll be, I think it's pertinent to the discussion we're having now about trying to change course of this gigantic cruise ship that is the restaurant industry. What did you see that was broken with the way people reserved reserved seats at restaurants before? And what did it take ultimately to convince owners that a big change was necessary? What, what did you ultimately do to say <laughs> you can leave open table? Well, we got really good, really well-respected operators to take a leap with us. And that signaled to others that the coast was clear. That was the most important thing that we did. Um, but what we saw is that the model was broken for a couple reasons. Like, you know, you have a business that from, from its profile in the minds of a consumer is like a rocket ship. Like I, as I said, you know, restaurants are premium entertainment. The amount of enthusiasm for restaurants over the last 20 years, it's, it is that it's increased on an exponential curve. I mean, humongous uh, interest and enthusiasm for restaurants, but the business, but the, but the margins haven't changed the way, the way restaurants have marketed haven't changed. And so what we saw is, you know, restaurants have to get good again at marketing themselves. Like what they're paying to put a customer in a seat is crazy. It doesn't work. Like how are restaurants getting more and more popular and the margins are staying the same? And, and our view is a lot of it is because they don't know how to market themselves. And if you think about, if you think about the sort of eras of restaurant marketing, if you take this back to the pre digital days, like, you know, 1995, restaurants were good at marketing. Like you'd see like ads in the newspaper. Like you'd have a local plan to how to get to for how to get the word out, right? And you'd know that like, okay, I'm going to build my audience over the next 
six to nine months as I open my restaurant, I'm going to focus on getting those customers to come back. So then the digital age happens and this thing called open table comes around and all of a sudden all everyone's problems are solved because there's one top of funnel and it's open table. And as long as you're on open table, you don't have to worry about anything else. Now, the problem with that is no, there's a generation of restaurateurs who did not learn how to market their restaurants alongside building them. And so Open Table saw that and and took that took took great advantage of that and created a monopoly and 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 became uh, the gatekeeper for for restaurant customers and started buying restaurant customers for twenty five cents and selling them back to restaurants for a dollar. Now that's a great business for Open Table, but if you have to pay a fee every time your regular sits down at a table, you're in effect paying the technology company a management fee to have a screen in the front of the restaurant. So obviously like that's broken, but restaurants for a long time had no choice. And we're in a new era now where restaurants are starting to market again. And I'm proud to, 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 to say that I think Resi's been part of that, part of that, the, the, the dawn of the new era, because what we've been saying to restaurants is, look, you have a brand, you have customers, but you have to learn how to connect with them and you have to learn how to market to them. And you have to under, you have to learn about how valuable they are. And, and they're doing that now. I mean, I think, I think Momofuku is a good example. Like restaurants are good marketers again. Um, but that was the key insight is that the, is that that part of the, that part of the model is totally broken and you can't, if, if restaurants are getting more and more popular and the, and the margin is staying exactly the same, obviously there's something to fix there. You know, one of the great stories that I don't even know why, but years ago, I read a book by Andy Grove, who was the CEO of Intel, Only the Paranoid Survive. And I, I don't know why, because the only story I ever remember from this book is Bob Noyce, one of the great VC legends in Silicon Valley, was, I think, the chairperson, and they were, like, best friends. And Intel was the largest memory, pro- memory chip company in the world. They were kicking ass, number one. But lo and behold, in the early 80s, Japan and the Japanese government were subsidizing memory chips and just like making them for like, you know, a quarter of the cost. So Intel, if they looked at the numbers like, hey, we're going to be, I'm paraphrasing a lot of this stuff. We're going to be number one for five more years and then we're going to be dead, you know? And a lot of, I think, leaders in that field probably would have just worried about the short-term solution. What's for me this year? What's for me the following year? And like restaurateurs and chefs, you see the problem and you try to ignore it because it's just too fucking hard. And they knew it was an issue because they were forward-thinking guys and they asked themselves, hey, we need to actually tackle this, but we don't know how because we're so emotionally attached to the product designs of this and that because they built this company from scratch. And they just came up with a simple exercise. If the board fired us and brought someone else in, what would they do? Get the fuck out of memory. (laughs) It's pretty clear. Well, you have the time, get the fuck out of memory. And they had one small division and they were looking at whatever could be forward looking and they had microprocessing. And they, there was that, you know, computer algorithm where it's like every five years, the computers will get smaller and faster. And like, oh, that makes sense. We should look into microprocessing. Oh, well, we actually have a small division. Let's just go all in on that. And literally that's how they changed the, sort of the face of, how we live today by taking the most, ins- I love that shit. Someone taking an insane bet. 
So today for a restaurant owner, and this is what Marge and I and a lot of people in our company were talking about for the past sort of several years as we were sort of seeing where food was going, I can actually say this because I did start two companies that did <laughs> ghost kitchens before anyone else. Uh, three, if you include Fuku, because Fuku was supposed to be a ghost kitchen before the <laughs> tam- ghost kitchen actually happened. We just didn't expect it to work at 163 First Avenue. So we knew it was going to be some form of delivery, right? That would, was one thing. But we also knew that, hmm, you look at uh, Rayo's, for example. They sell sauces, but they only have one restaurant but they're making so much money off these fucking sauces that they're able to subsidize the restaurant. They're able to actually say, no, we don't want people to eat here. It's amazing. I love it. And that's when we're like, okay, we need to really explore CPG goods, which is why we started to do Psalm sauce. We were just dipping our toes to get enough data as to see how things might work. And, you know, we did the high end with, the, with, the, with our version of misos and soy sauces and stuff. So we knew it was there and here's the thing that I love the most. Wait, we can make something, and if we don't sell it, it's okay. <laughs> it's like, wait. Like, I'll never forget, when I visited Massimo in Modena, I'm like, wait, hey, chef, everyone here is literally driving Lamborghinis and Ferraris. Everyone <laughs> in this town is driving Lamborghinis and Ferraris. How is this fucking possible? And then it dawned on me as this aha fucking moment. I was like, oh, my God. If they don't sell a wheel of cheese, they make more money. They take the worst grape in the world, one of the worst grapes in the world. You couldn't, turn, you couldn't sell it for wine. They sell it as vinegar. And it's the only thing I know of where if they don't sell a vintage of vinegar, they make more money the following year. And I was like, huh, this, there's a fucking way to do this. I may never be able to sell balsamic vinegar, but I will do anything I can, including starting Ondo and Maple and Fuku, if I can have the restaurants that I want to operate the way I want to, because I have other streams of revenue coming in. And that's why we took all these bets. Most of them blew up in my face. Fine. I'm, I, I will have no regrets taking chances because it proves that I was actually right. <laughs> you know, the timing was off. So I was still wrong. But we were looking at this sort of this year, actually, in terms of the meetings. They're all in the meeting notes. Hey, how do we make this faster? How do we make this change faster? We're always going to do restaurants, but they, there's literally, <laughs> like one of the, the notes in the meeting was, uh, in five years, Momofuku's gross revenue from restaurants has to be below 30%. And guess what? Impossible goal. But you're not supposed to reach your fucking goals. That's why they're goals, in my opinion. And we reached out and go, in five years, Momofuku's revenue has to be 30% derived from restaurants. Great. All right, what do we need to do to reverse engineer to that point? So luckily enough, I believe Momofuku's microprocessing is all the CPG products. We've had a lab for 12 years. We're sitting on a treasure trove of goodness. And I'm so lucky and thankful but this is one of the reasons why I didn't take a huge salary. We continue to invest into the resources of IP and all of these things. Now, the next problem for us is how do we activate these things? And that's where we're at right now. Because we actually had a game plan for five years. Well, that's fucking out the window now. We got to do that shit now. And part of the problem that breaks my heart is, okay, Momofuku has this opportunity. 
what happens with everyone else that is running a good business, but they don't because they were just worried about running a great business. They weren't doing TV and stupid shit like I was doing, you know? And that's the problem. If you were really running the restaurant the proper way with complete focus, I think you're going to get hurt. And that, that breaks my heart. I, I mean, there's so many, so much goodness in what you just said. I, I think, you know, I think certainly some folks are going to get hurt, but I also think you, the process that you've described and the things that you guys have been doing, I do think on some level, a lot are somewhat accessible to the average restaurateur. I mean, I think the other thing, you know, about the Intel story, there's lots of stories like this is, you know, and I think this is part of what you guys have done is you figured out that you're not actually selling food on a plate. Like this goes back to my point about brand. Like you're selling a brand, you're selling an idea, you're selling, you know, for Amex, we had, we had um, Warren Buffett come and talk to some of the leadership um, a couple months ago. And, you know, he, you know, we're, Amex is selling trust, right? Like Amex is selling for the most part, trust. Um, and, and that is so important to understand what you're actually selling. And I hope that restaurant restaurateurs take that time to figure out what they're actually selling. Because the good news is like restaurant professionals are incredibly good at selling things like hospitality, right? And, and selling a lot of things that they don't quite realize, I think, in many ways that they're selling. But I think that that's why some will become grocery stores and some will become like membership style places and some will become CPG brands and some will stay at local restaurants. But restaurants are selling a lot of things other than food on a plate right now today. And they just have to, I think they have, people have to stop and like do the work of understanding what they're really selling. Cause I think that there'll be breakthrough ideas in there, just like what there was for Momofuku. Can I give a breakthrough idea that I just want to open source and share to everybody because Please. I want people to do this and it's gotten a bad, bad rap Two two restaurants that happened, you know, Danny Meyer did that Lexus partnership. Yeah. I don't know if it's a success or not. And, and, and um, uh, Steven Starr, who I believe is probably the most underrated, but probably the best restaurateur in America right now. Started that um, doesn't get enough credit. As far as operating sit down Un- restaurants, that guy <laughs> is a fucking ninja. <laughs> I just don't know. I mean, I think about it in like sports. I'm like, that fucking guy takes his team to the semifinals or finals every fucking year. It's it's unbelievable. I don't know how he it's does. Unbelievable. It. Um, it's unbelievable. But he opened up with um, in Soho with Roman Williams, that restaurant that oh, is yeah. basically, you can buy whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been toying around this idea a long time because I feel like we're just going to have to stop with this, you know, holier than now restaurants can't sell branding and all this other shit. Like that's part of the problem. You know, we actually have to be open to different sources of revenue. When Danny and Steven did this, I was like, fuck, I was so pissed because <laughs> we were working on this for so long. That doesn't mean that it can't be better because I think you're seeing the first generations of these restaurants. Because if you think about it already, when I'm thinking about becoming the predator, not the wildebeest, right? Restaurants have always been used to incept the ideas for everyone else. Well, 
All we need to do is just be like, okay, actually, we're the landlords of this shit now. We're charging you. You want to you you want us to sell that beef because we're a hot new restaurant, or I'm a young chef and I just won Food and Wine Best New Chef. Guess what? You pay me to put this on your menu, not vice versa. Hundred percent. We I need mean, that, to have the solidarity to say fuck you. This is our time now. But you don't have to do it in that. Like you should say fuck you. It's our time. But there's you do it elegantly, right? Like because <laughs> the dynamics are already there. Right. No, but I'm, I'm saying the dynamics are already there. Like Agreed. you've put it on the Momofuku menu. I'm a buyer. Yeah. Like that's the point. Like it's our the dynamics are there. Like Stephen Starr saw this with with La Mercerie. Like if Roman Williams says, this is the plate I should have on my table. Cool. I'll put it on my table. Because they're the best at that. And everyone's going to eat there. And this happens all the time. You go to a new restaurant, you're like, oh man, I love that napkin they're using. I love that plate. And people will try to see where that plate's from. Well, just buy the fucking thing at the goddamn (laughs) restaurant. We should become showrooms for marketing. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Now, I think think that not all restaurants can do that because not all restaurants think about design in a way where it's so good that they can sell it. But I think the point is a thousand percent spot on. And it speaks to the, to, to what we're saying, like about what restaurants are actually selling versus what they think they're selling. A lot of restaurants are selling the plate that's on the table, even though they don't even know it. And I think the smart guys are going to say like, let's just sell the plate. Let's just sell the beef because we found the purveyor for this stuff and it's better. Like I remember back in the day, like when you guys had Benton's bacon <laughs> on the, on the menu at some in the early days, like you guys were early to that guy, to that farm, to that bacon. Well, I mean, very early to country ham in general. <laughs> like, <laughs> But that's my point. Like I would buy that and put it in my refrigerator and put it in my pantry and that's a restaurant, that's a role that restaurants will start playing. I can't, if, if I had <laughs> the ability to re- recollect every conversation I had about this subject without getting upset, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, people in the business don't understand how much power they actually have as tastemakers. And if you're not a tastemaker, yes. as an artisan, as a craftsman, if like Dom DeMarco said, this is the pizza cutter that you should buy. Well, fuck, I'm going to buy it. Overnight. Overnight. One second. One second. We have domain expertise that no one else has. Right. And we need That's to exactly unlock right. that. And listen, this is going to be controversial to a lot of people. Guess what? Who fucking cares right now? <laughs> we need to be open to things. And everything I'm saying, let me be the first one to tell you, I'll probably fall flat in my face fucking trying it. Who gives a shit? We have to try new things out of our comfort zone because we haven't been doing it enough, which is why we're in this fucking mess, or at least susceptible and vulnerable to this situation. The, there is a great book called, the, the, called Originals, which I'm sure you've read by Adam Grant. And one of the ideas about, that I took away from that book that resonates with me, and I think about it all the time, is that all successful entrepreneurs, people who come up with transformative ideas, they make tons of mistakes and they get tons of stuff wrong. And I think that that what you just said is so important. Like we have got to be fearless right now and we've got to make a lot of mistakes because out of those mistakes will come the answers. 
Right. But, but we're not going to bat a thousand right now. We'll be lucky. Well, we will be, we'll be, if we bat 300, by the way, if we bat 300, come out of this with an incredible business. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, I was just imagining some of my friends in this business that could hear whatever we just said about becoming a, you know, a platform to just sell shit and how it could potentially grotesque people out. I get it. But this is the opportunity to say, okay, given this opportunity, how do we make sure that I won't be grossed out by doing this, by selling something? So we have this opportunity to reimagine this and to do it with some dignity. I'm not saying be, look like a NASCAR driver. So like, how do, you, how do you do this in a way where you can feel good about yourself? And also, if you're productive and profitable, think all the good things you're going to be able to do for your employees yeah. and the purchasing power that you're going to have and all of these things. So again, I love bad ideas. And I think people need to be a little bit more open to why you're allergic to an idea. And if you are and you hate it, then how do you make it better? Because right now what's pissing me off in this business, a lot of things are, is we have, I think, majority of people saying, uh, that's dumb, or I'm calling you out because you made a mistake here, or that's stupid. I mean, how could you do that? I'm like, the problem isn't that we can identify, not identify the problems. The problem is no one's coming up with new fucking solutions. Yeah. But you know what, Dave? I think, I think this is another reason why restaurateurs and chefs are particularly well-suited to solve these problems because this will not, this will, this can only go badly if consumers sniff out inauthenticity and sniff out bullshit and, and chefs and restaurateurs almost definitionally are passionate and authentic. And I think that, and certainly the good ones are like, you want to know what the common thread is between Steven Starr and you, like other than success, is authenticity and passion. And that is a powerful combination when it comes to trying new things. Like consumers, consumers go nuts for passion and authenticity like clockwork. What they sniff out is, is bullshit. And that's when there's blood in the water and that's when you fail. But if you do it in the right way and you and it comes from the right place, the sky's the limit. Yeah. I feel like the, the restaurant industry is one of the few remaining cultural edifices where the people, the artists, the chefs, the restaurants are are subjected to this like don't sell out mentality. Like they're they're still being held hostage by this notion. And I think this crisis has shown us anything. Nobody's people need to make money to survive. And this business is broken. And if they have to hold this hard line of, oh, I have to keep this pure thing and not sell anything and not, you know, use my position to uh, push consumer goods or anything like that, like it's just a broken business. So totally. I'm going to be the biggest, biggest fucking sellout anyone's ever fucking seen. <laughs> That's my goal. <laughs> That's right. Good riddance to that. So today's episode is brought to you by the Momofuku quad core <laughs> processor, which powers all of our MacBooks. <laughs> but again, like, you know, it, th this is another framework that I ask because a lot of people that I'm in, in the industry ask me, hey, should I do TV? Or like, oh man, I don't want to do this because it's reality, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, because now we're, Chris and I are making the TV show business too. And there's a crazy idea that will be announced hopefully sooner rather than later. It would have been if we didn't have this epidemic. You would love this idea. I'll tell you offline because it's fucking insane. <laughs> and it, it bridges a lot of the things that we talked about in this episode. 
but like to me it was always like okay the bad idea is uh, you know what fuck top chef and all these shows like it sucks but guess what people like it mm-hmm. top chef has been on 20 20 years or almost 20 years people love it yep and it's really if you take a step back it's really further the conversation of high-end gastronomy in so many different ways across the country you can't be anti-top chef because you're probably busy because of it so or even chopped for that matter all these shows because at some point in my life i was like oh i'm too cool for that shit no i'm an idiot the question then is why do you not want to be in a reality competition right to a lot of my friends and uh it's like it's a sellout uh i'm gonna look like an idiot there's no integrity, blah, 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 blah. The list goes on and on and on. And then the question then is, okay, if that's the case, then what would be the criteria for you to say yes? And let's reimagine that, right? Oh, you need money? You need a bank loan? You'd, you, would you not enter this competition if you made $10 million? I, I would. I'm going <laughs> to... Who wouldn't? Like, legitimately. Okay. Like, you wouldn't do this for this and this and this. Like, once you start creating this imaginary set of ideas of why you might want to do this show, then it becomes very exciting because then you can start to maybe make it work. And then all of a sudden you have a show that might change the whole genre and becomes something that is something you want to be a part of. And I know what I just said, is seems like a non sequitur, but if you use your imagination in this business, there's thousands of things like this. You just have to think outside the box a little bit and not be afraid to look like an idiot. That's the key point. Take a swing. Saying yes is way more fun than saying no anyway. I mean, nobody's going to knock you for taking a swing right now. There's people, there's, there's restaurateurs who are putting mannequins in seats right now to, to, to try and figure out social distancing in a, in a restaurant context and figure out what, what, how, you, how you set ambiance. Like, are mannequins the right answer? Fuck no. <laughs> but he's taking a swing. Yeah. And it's going to get us to a solution. Like, And you know who I'm not going to make fun of? Patrick O'Connell, one of the best chefs America's ever produced. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nope. Right. Um, all right, Ben. Hey, pretty optimistic. <laughs> Dude, I, I'm optimistic because I believe in hospitality and I believe in restaurants. Like, I think that restaurants will find a way through. Like, we're not, this is not going to be a world without restaurants, but and this is not going to be a world without hospitality. And this is not going to be a world where people can't go out and enjoy a meal and enjoy and enjoy each other's company. But it's going to take a while. And we've got to get comfortable with the, with the, with the timeline because there will be brightness on the other side. But settle in, bro, because it's going to be a while. <laughs> ben, I, I, I thank you for coming on the show. And, you know, I was just thinking... Um, I don't know if people know, again, how smart you are about all of these things. I want you on the show a lot. We should have you on a, as a regular. Whenever you want, I'm here. <laughs> this was awesome. Thank you for having me. You got it. Well, that was our conversation with Ben Leventhal. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, I wanted to touch upon... In maybe a future episode or two, some of the the forward-looking business things uh, that we're doing in Momofuku, whether it's CPG or direct-to-consumer things, and also touch upon a lot more on this subject of ghost kitchens and delivery. Listen, I, I know that these 
companies that seem like they're making a ton of money, the Uber Eats, the Postmates. I know it's not a healthy business for them either. So we can bitch and moan as much as we want, but we're going to have to come up with a, a better solution from the restaurant's perspective and the logistics of it all. So this is going to be the beginning of a conversation, and I think it's going to be important that we have people like Ben come back on this pod and to sort of give their takes as to how we need to shape this whole thing. The one thing I, I really do want to suggest for all of us is to study some American pragmatism, the philosophy of American pragmatism. I think it's quite different than just pragmatism or making a practical decision. And I think it's an understanding what is most useful right now as a, as a measurement of truth to look at data and to extrapolate where things are going to go, what we need to do by sort of making assessments with like not editing in our head, you know, something that we've talked a lot about in these podcasts to just go out there and do the work and to see what doesn't work and to sort of take it from there uh, one step, one day at a time. And that's what we're trying to do and understanding full well what works for us only works for us. And we need to sort of figure out how to get a, a best in class practice and example for a lot of restaurant owners to understand that the future is going to be quite different and whatever worked for us in the past barely worked for us, if at all. And we need to take this opportunity to make sure that we reimagine what the future is going to be. Anyway, I could talk incessantly about this. I will shut up. Thank you, Ben, for joining us. Thanks, Chris, as always, for helping out. Stay tuned this week for another podcast. I know these are getting maybe granular for people not in this business, but I, I think from a, an outsider's perspective or a diner's perspective, it's important to know that this industry that we're in is in a bad place, but that doesn't mean that it has to remain there. And there's a lot of positive things happening in this world right now, in this business right now. Obviously, you have Jose Andres and there are a lot of people doing some extraordinary things. And I think we need to start to not only just celebrate that, but have some solidarity as to how we're going to move forward. Anyway, I'll shut up right now. Give us five stars, however you rate this, Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and stay tuned for our second podcast this week.